Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC News White House correspondent Mary Alice Parks. Ooh, a new title, Mary Alice. Congratulations <laughs> on our air. Congratulations. Um, well, uh, Rick, you've, you've been my boss for the last few years. I think you'll kind of always get to be my boss. Okay, good. I'll take that. I, I, for the record, because John Kroll isn't on the show today, I'm his boss too. Everyone knows this. That's 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 how the that's how it all works. Uh, but Mary Alice, thank you for uh, for subbing in and, and congratulations on the promotion. Excited to have you over at the White House uh, doing reporting for us in this new administration. And uh, it is uh, an interesting week. It's President's Day week. Joe Biden trying to reclaim his presidency from the shadow of Donald Trump. Uh, later in the show, uh, got a very special conversation with Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead House and impeachment manager uh, who was uh, just so compelling in, in recounting his personal story and making the case against President Trump in that trial that wrapped up over, over the weekend. Uh, but Mary Alice, I, I want to focus on the push from President Biden for COVID relief. He knows it's the big thing. He knows this is everything. He knows this is why he was elected. He knows he needs to deliver on it. And about a month into the presidency, it, it seems to me like we've seen some shifting goalposts, uh, some realizations about uh, complications and how difficult this actually is, and uh, some some major political pushback starting to starting to swarm around uh, around this package and around the plans for getting the country open. Yeah, some realizations of just how hard it is to to have any compromise, any negotiations on Capitol Hill. We were going to have Republicans willing to play ball with Democrats when, in fact, what we're hearing from Republican leaders, uh, they just want to unite their conference against this package. We've had very little concrete negotiation between the two parties. But I think that the president is also having tough realizations about just the limits of his power and his authority, what he actually can get done. I mean, I was struck during his town hall when he had this emotional question from a mom about wanting a vaccine for her son who, who has uh, you know, medical vulnerabilities. And he had to say, you know, I'm making all these recommendations to states. I'm trying to boost the number of vaccines going out to states. But at the end of the day, states make a lot of decisions with the rollout. And that question feels like it's tenfold on the issue of schools and other parts of this pandemic that he really um, is bumping up against the limits of federal authority. Yeah, and the schools issue, I think, is, is such a big one for, for parents, obviously. Uh, it reaches literally into every corner of the country. Uh, everyone has a stake in, in seeing that schools are, are reopened uh, and reopened safely. Uh, but that bold statement that the, the, the White House put out early on uh, about uh, how quickly things would be opened got walked back pretty substantially, including at that CNN town hall mm -hmm. on Tuesday night. Listen to this. This is, this is Anderson Cooper talking to President Biden about that pledge. Your administration had set a goal to open the majority of schools in your first 100 days. You're now saying that means those schools may only be open for at least one day a week. No, that's not true. That's what was reported. Uh -huh. That's not true. It was a mistake in the communication. But what, I've, what I'm talking about is I said opening the majority of schools in K through eighth grade because they're the easiest to open the most needed to be open in terms of the impact on children and families having to stay home. So when do you think that would be K through eight, at I least think we'll five be, days a week? I think possible? we'll be close to that at the end of the first hundred days. So Mary Alice, you know, because you've been covering it every day, uh, we're, we've seen the goalposts move a couple of times. Um, we've seen uh, an attempt to kind of reset 
what uh, what is realistic. Uh, and of course, it all happens at the local level. And to hear to hear President Biden at that town hall tick through the range of things you need to do: uh, ventilation systems, cafeteria workers, bus drivers. Uh, he even talked about the need to extend into summer sessions and, and hire more teachers and find more classrooms. This is complicated stuff, and I think I think that's dawning on mm-hmm. this president uh, early on in a way that's. Uh, potentially more politically problematic even than, than just a, a pledge because you've got labor unions in the form of teachers unions in this case that in many cases are resisting reopening. That's a political vulnerability for Joe Biden and for Democrats. Absolutely. He pledged something that he didn't have control over. You know, education is largely still a local and state issue. I mean, the federal government knows that. Joe Biden's not new to this process. He knows that. But he wanted to come in and set these big goals. Another issue for him, though, was that these goals were so undefined. Like you said, I mean, I sat in the White House briefing. I asked Jen Psaki repeatedly, when you say you want to open schools, what do you mean by open? What's the definition of open? And last week, she could not spit out a direct answer. You heard there, he played, sort of did some cleanup work, clarifying K through eight, obviously younger kids, less likely to transmit COVID. But to come in with these bold proclamations that you're going to try to open schools when actually it's local school districts that open schools and you weren't exactly clear which schools you were prioritizing it's gotten them jumbled up right off, right out of the gate. And Mary Alice has crystallized some of the Republican opposition, the $1.9 trillion plan. It's an interesting piece of messaging from, from President Biden because he'll say, well, it already, the support already is bipartisan, even though we don't know of one Republican who's ready to support um, the, the package. And, 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 and I feel like – uh, listen to this. I, I feel like with with the president's growing a little bit indignant, frustrated even uh, at the at the way that the opposition has mounted a bit. Um, he had a little back and forth with uh, with our colleague Mary Bruce today over at the White House, uh, talking about uh, what it is exactly that opponents of the uh, of the plan he's put forward don't like. I asked a rhetorical question: those who oppose the plan, what don't they like? What particular program don't they like? Don't they want to help people with nutrition? Don't they want to help people be able to pay their mortgages? Don't they want to help people get their unemployment insurance? Don't they want to make sure that people are able to stay in their homes without being thrown out of their homes in the middle of this god-awful pandemic? What don't they like? Uh, you know, look, I, I, I think Republicans can view that almost as a dare. Uh, and th- there's plenty in the aggregate of the package to not like if you're Republican. The overall spending number, the the, uh, the inclusion of the minimum wage, at least in, 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 in the House version of this package, a minimum wage increase, uh, the money for schools, much of which wouldn't even be dispersed in calendar year 2021. Uh, you can find stuff to oppose if you're a Republican. Uh, and the, the President Biden has an awful lot riding on this. And it, and, and it does seem like those a conflict here between getting done what he knows has to get done or believes has to get done as, as item number one and trying to achieve some bipartisanship in, in getting it done. And I think that the Biden administration, if they decide to push ahead with Democrats in Congress, a, a Democratic-only legislative vehicle, right? They, they sort of make sure that they get this through in a budget process. They don't need Republican support. If they go that route, they're going to have to explain it. What was the part that was absolutely worth not budging on? Was it all that money for schools? Well, then, how quickly can that money go out the door? Are we really talking about remodeling schools with billions of dollars in the next few months to open them up? Or was it the part about direct checks to families? They're going to, was it a different part, minimum wage, like you said? Right now, 
It's unclear what the red line is for this administration. And was it just the $1.9 figure or is it a specific policy proposal? So I think right now Democrats are flirting with this idea of, of moving ahead on their own without having really defined what is going to be the point that they pull the trigger. And look, Republicans I've talked to in the last in the last day or so, even since the town hall, feel like if this lingers, if uh, if if school reopenings are still an issue, if if society reopening is still an issue, well into twenty twenty two, that is a powerful political argument in the midterm elections. And uh, there's no there's no question that uh, Joe Biden was elected in part on the idea that he could deal with COVID. He knows it, mm. but it, this is this is become a very frustrating issue very early on. One other exchange from the, the CNN town hall that I, I found striking, and it was this was a, it was a long exchange. So this is just a piece of it, um, which I think I think is is an illuminating one. Just basically, this is Anderson Cooper just trying to ask the basic question: When do we get back to normal? I will always level with you. Use Franklin Roosevelt's example. I'll shoot to give it straight from the shoulder, straight from the shoulder what I know and what I don't know. We don't know for certain, but it is highly unlikely that by the beginning of next year's school, traditional school year in September, we are not significantly better off than we are today. But it matters. Okay, Mary Alice, I'm going to shoot straight from the shoulder with you. I have absolutely no idea what that means. I, I can't, I cannot parse uh-huh. that that answer. Um, and again, it was a longer answer, and it was a contradictory answer at times. Uh, I guess the, the the relevant part is what he says: we don't know for certain because we don't know for certain. People are looking for right. certainty, but I, this defies certain predictions, and it's just it, 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 it is one of those things where. President Biden, I think, is learning in real time the the limits of what you can promise and what you can potentially deliver. Yeah. I mean, I think that most Americans understand that we just don't know, but it just feels like a gut punch to have your leaders say that. We know that it's a big question mark. How many Americans are going to feel comfortable taking a brand new vaccine? Despite what the experts say, there's still some hesitancy. It's dropping all the time. More and more people ready to take the vaccine, but it's still a question. We don't know which schools are going to try to follow the CDC recommendations point by point, and which are going to say by September, we just have to put kids in classrooms, even if we can't put them six feet apart. And and we also don't know the kind of cultural X factor that I think about a lot. You, you know, even if the everyone gets vaccinated, even if we reach herd immunity, even if the variants prove to be, um, you know, sort of uh, slow, the spread of the variants is slowed by the vaccines. Do people feel comfortable returning to life like they used to? That's this big uh, like question that none of us feel like we can define, not in our families, not in our workplaces yet. And, and, and Joe Biden's realizing it's hard to define it for the government at any level. Yes. And, it, you know, a month in, we're seeing an administration cope with these these new realities and have to own it. And I was struck by how many times President Biden at that CNN town hall said he didn't want to talk about his predecessor. He didn't want to talk about President Trump, but man, he kept coming up. He kept coming up. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we are going to have a conversation with Congressman Jamie Raskin, the lead House impeachment manager. Stay with us. 
And we're pleased to be joined here on Powerhouse Politics by Congressman Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, was the, the, the lead manager in the uh, impeachment trial that uh, wrapped up over the weekend, uh, really gave uh, a, an emotional uh, performance uh, and, and a powerful performance over several days. Congressman, welcome to the program. Delighted to be with you guys. So, Congressman Raskin, I, I want to start with with kind of how things ended on on Saturday, because you know a lot of us were watching and kind of puzzled by the end stages of of this trial. Uh, you you got the vote uh, to 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 hear from witnesses, and then a whole flurry happened, and a couple hours later, the decisions made to enter a statement into the record, but not have not have witnesses. And I understand that that ultimately that was your decision and the House managers' decisions. But take take us take us behind that. Why did you decide? When there were a lot of questions out there posed by Congresswoman Herrera Butler and others to say, okay, enough. Was it just that you were worried that the, there would be be kind of a circus of, of witnesses, or did you were you convinced that you learned everything you could learn? Well, Congresswoman Butler had very bravely come forward to report what she had been told by Kevin McCarthy, which is that McCarthy had been uh, you know, desperately trying to get in touch with the president and uh, trying to get the president to send help. And when he connected with him, um, Trump said originally something to the effect of it's Antifa, there's nothing I can do. And McCarthy said, no, it's not Antifa, it's your people. And then Trump said something to the effect of, well, maybe they just care more about um, an honest election than you do. In other words, McCarthy wasn't doing enough and th th these people were clearly doing the bidding of the president. So this was further decisive corroborating evidence of the mountain of evidence we had submitted in the case. And um, so, as you saw, I introduced a motion to bring her in as a witness. And um, uh, at that point, um, there was uh, the, a recess and uh, the Republicans were struggling to deal with it because they didn't, you know, they didn't want to, you know, have this kind of this kind of evidence coming in. Um, and then they said that they would just stipulate to the statement. And, you know, if we hadn't agreed to that, then they would, you know, as you saw, they were demanding they wanted to uh, uh, depose Nancy Pelosi and uh, Vice President Kamala Harris and so on. And, um, you know, they were basically threatening that they were going to uh, turn the whole thing into circus. So we got exactly what we wanted, which was this statement. Uh, I wasn't aware that there was a whole furor outside that we should move ahead with more witnesses, but we would have moved ahead with any witnesses that uh, would have helped us uh, make the case. Um, and you know, people were saying, "Well, you know, why don't you why don't you call Kevin McCarthy? Who knows what Kevin McCarthy would have done?" So, in any event, well, we got exactly the evidence that we wanted in. Uh, we proved, I think, to everybody's satisfaction, including Mitch McConnell's. Uh, that the president had incited violent insurrection against the union. And that that was the point of the prosecution. And uh, I don't think anybody leaves confused about that. Obviously, we would have loved to have had Donald Trump come testify. It's a scandal that he didn't. And uh, we repeatedly made the point that we should resolve every uh, adverse inference against him, uh, precisely because he didn't show up. And that, you know, that's the law. And Justice Scalia was, you know, the most forceful exponent of that idea. If you don't show up to a civil trial, you know, invoking your Fifth Amendment or just not showing up, the civil tribunal has every right to resolve every uh, factual uncertainty against you and your position. 
Speaking of President Trump, he gave an interview, his first since leaving the White House just this afternoon. Um, he called into Fox News in reference to the, 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 the passing of Rush Limbaugh. And among other things, he said he still thinks he won, uh, that he still thinks he won the election, that people are very angry around there. He says Rush Limbaugh agreed with him as well. Does that does that surprise you? Uh, and, and do you view that as uh, uh, meaningful information moving forward that the president continues to believe in and, and perpetrate the big lie? Well, of course, it is meaningful information. It does not surprise me because his uh, lawyers refused to commit to the obvious fact that uh, the rest of the world accepts, which is that Joe Biden beat um, Donald Trump um, by more than 7 million votes. Uh, more than 10 million people voted for Biden and other candidates in the race than Trump. And Trump was defeated in the Electoral College by a vote of 306 to 232, um, which was the exact same margin that Trump uh, won by in 2016, which he declared to be a landslide. So, you know, the, the big lie was the underlying premise of the violent insurrection and attack on the Capitol. And it was the underlying premise of uh, the president's uh, absurd defense that he mounted at the impeachment trial. And it continues to be um, the premise of uh, Donald Trump's uh, political career and uh, movement, such as it is. Uh, I mean, this will be the basis of it, that somehow that election was uh, stolen from him. And so the idea that 43 senators could sign off on that uh, is really appalling. I mean, I, I think that we should have won this uh, trial, not 57 to 43, but 100 to zero. One one method that's been talked about to try to to bring a further uh, accounting of the events would be uh, what's being commonly described as a 9-11 style commission to, to investigate January 6th. I, I can imagine you being involved in that at a couple of different levels uh, through the committee level, as well as your experience as the as the lead house manager. Uh, how, how do you feel like that can or, or should be structured? Uh, is there is there a way to do it that avoids some of the roadblocks that you ran into, namely not being able to interview uh, everyone, gather all of the information that you wanted uh, to, to basically give it some teeth if uh, if if indeed we go forward with a, a yeah. Commission like this. Well, um, it, it should be an outside commission, an independent commission, as the 9-11 commission was. So there should not be members of Congress on it. Um, it should be uh, nonpartisan uh, or at least multipartisan in nature. Um, and uh, it should aim at the truth of both the events of um, 1-6 and then also the causes of it and um, the continuing dangers that the Republic experiences from this kind of, uh, you know, this kind of assault on our democratic institutions. So I think it's very important that we do it. I'm totally supportive of uh, the creation of such a commission. And, you know, we have felt from the beginning that the truth is the essential factor here. Um, and the truth is the counter to the big lie and everything that flows out of it. And the truth leads us to uh, a vigorous defense of our democratic institutions. And the big lie leads us to autocracy and despotism and uh, violent racist movements that uh, are the gateway to destruction of uh, American constitutional democracy. There was an interesting uh, story in the Washington Post today by Michael Rosenwald about the about the the, the 9/11 Commission, 
And the point that that, uh, that that Mike makes is that that commission was lauded at the time as being bipartisan, but there's actually a lot of partisanship that went into the, the forming of its conclusions and even the gathering of evidence. And uh, they're, they're remembering now, it took a lot for the commission members to get an interview even with, with President Bush and Vice President Cheney. Do you feel like it's critical to get President Trump, Vice President Pence, uh, Mark Meadows, individuals like that on the record as part of that? Is there a way to compel uh, cooperation with uh, with the actual principles to fill in some of the gaps that in, in what you were able to gather? Well, of course they should be able to get the testimony of uh, the president and the White House chief of staff and other people involved. I mean, what does it mean to have public office and not to subject yourself to public accountability? I mean, the, the whole idea is absurd. Uh, you know, if you don't want uh, to maintain transparency about government and policies and uh, public events, then don't go into it. I mean, no, nobody made Donald Trump swear an oath to preserve, protect and defend the Constitution in on January 20th, 2017. But he did. And once you swear that oath, you've got to be bound by it. Now, he violated the oath. And for that, he was impeached and he was um voted to be convicted by uh, the commanding majority of the Senate, 57 to 43. It was not enough to, um, you know, it was not enough to complete the conviction uh, and then, you know, to move to disqualify him in the future. But um, he has been isolated in the court of uh, public opinion, in the court of history. And I think he will become um, rapidly a pariah uh, within American politics. I mean, the, the group that's around him will um, cling to him ever more tightly and passionately, but that is a distinct minority of the American people uh, who want to move on. I mean, Donald Trump is the past and uh, the future is coming, uh, you know, regardless of what uh, the Trumpists want. Are you able to, to write cooperation or some kind of something specifically into the legislation to, to, to be able to require Trump, Pence, and, and the like to, to, to cooperate? Or is it giving subpoena power to a commission? How would you handle that? Well, there definitely should be subpoena power. Um, and, and everybody owes his or her truthful testimony to the sovereign. Um, above all, people who have sworn an oath um, to the union. Um, but look, I mean, Donald Trump's um, status as a political actor in America is very dubious because of uh, Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, which says that people who've engaged in uh, armed insurrection and rebellion against the union after swearing an oath to us um, shall not be able to hold public office again. So he's in a very ambiguous situation as it stands. Um, and look, everybody should focus on the fact that he doesn't want to testify. Now, here he is on January 6th uh, telling his most uh, rabid followers that they have to show strength because they're never going to be able to take back the country with weakness. They've got to go. They have to show strength and they've got to go fight like hell. He won't even come and testify. He won't even stand up for the movement. Like, where is their big right wing Mussolini, Mussolini hero right now? You know, what a snowflake he is. He can't even stand up with the people that he counseled into a violent insurrection uh, against the union. And these people are facing hundreds, or I haven't added up all the cases yet, maybe thousands of years in prison. And he won't even come and speak for them. So he won't commit either to the movement that he uh, engendered and unleashed, or he won't come right out and disavow them and claim that 
he didn't know anything about it and he was really taken aback and taken by surprise, which was the absurd argument of his lawyers at trial that he was a victim of circumstance. Just to pick up on what you said about the 14th Amendment, I, that, that's, it's never been, to my knowledge, and you're the constitutional scholar, so tell me if I'm wrong, it's never been enforced uh, as such uh, under, under the, under, I don't even know if a mechanism to enforce that. Uh, would, can Congress, will Congress take further action to try to clarify that and to state affirmatively a disqualification around the 14th Amendment? Or would you just anticipate, would you anticipate maybe that there'd be a legal, if he were to run again, there, there could be a legal challenge under the 14th Amendment? How would that get litigated? Well, yeah, I mean, it's not, I think what you're saying, it's not been used since the, the Civil War Reconstruction right, period. since Reconstruction. Um, yeah, and uh, of course, th that was the original purpose of it, although on its terms, it's not limited to um, insurrection or rebellion as part of the um, Confederacy. Um, it's, it's stated generally for any insurrection or rebellion against the Union. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, no president obviously has come anywhere close to this kind of behavior. You know, we just observed President's Day. Can you imagine Abraham Lincoln or John Adams or Thomas Jefferson or Lyndon Johnson doing this, like sending uh, a violent mob to go and attack a coordinate branch of government? I mean, the whole idea is just appalling and absurd. So, um, we, you know, we are brought to um, we are brought to extremes, as always, by Donald Trump. Um, but the, the point is uh, very emphatic in the Constitution, because after the Civil War, there were some people saying, well, anybody who participated in the Confederacy shouldn't be able to vote. And that was way too sweeping for Congress, even the radical Republicans. And they said, that's too much. Then they said, all right, if you participated in the Confederacy, you can't hold public office. And again, that was too extreme. They said, that's too much. Then they narrowed it down to this subgroup, people who had actually served in the U.S. government, sworn an oath to the U.S. government to preserve, protect, and defend, or to defend us against all enemies, foreign and domestic, but then went ahead and engaged in rebellion and insurrection against us. And they said, that tiny microcosm, that smallest subgroup, those people should be excluded from ever being able to hold office. Well, Donald Trump is right in you know, the bullseye middle of that group. Um, and so he really does fulfill exactly the constitutional prohibition there. So would that be, could, could, would it be again, like an affirmative vote by Congress to say that, or would it have to be figured out if he were to try to pursue office again? Well, I th it remains to be seen. You know, presumably it could be done both affirmatively and defensively. People, you know, if he tried to run for office again, people could try to stop him uh, in the states. It also conceivably could be an affirmative statement by state legislatures, by Congress, by uh, other institutions. So we'd have to figure it out and do some more research about all of that. But the, the point is that the constitutional purpose is clear to keep people exactly like Donald Trump and other traitors to the union from holding public office. Finally, Congressman, before, before we let you go, I, I just want to say on a, on a personal note uh, how, how moving I felt your uh, uh, descriptions of, uh, of the events in your personal life intertwined with the, the, the events of our civic life. Um, and I commend you for, uh, for sharing that as part of, uh, as part of this journey. And I just want to ask at the end of this, what, what thoughts you have, you think about this, the last six weeks, uh, the, the, the suicide of your son all the <clears throat> way through the, the events over the weekend, the conclusion of this trial, I can't imagine you've had a more intense period personally or professionally, but what, what sense do you feel? What thoughts do you have at the end of this? Well, thank you for your, um, you know, thank you for your condolences and your thoughts. Um, 
This has been a very personal thing for me and for each of the impeachment managers. And I think it's been a personal thing for everybody on Capitol Hill. And I think, I hope that through the trial, uh, everybody feels democracy uh, is an intensely personal thing. Um, you know, when people live in societies governed by tyrants and fascists and cowards and despots, it infects every nook and cranny of your existence. People live in fear. People live in a cowardly way. People don't support each other. There's not solidarity. There's not strength. Um, and so we all have to feel that passionate personal attachment to our democracy, that connection, um, if it's going to survive, because there are obviously a lot of forces on the other side, and Donald Trump is the convergence of all of them, um, that are struggling to defeat democracy and destroy democracy. So we've got to stand tough for it. We've got to stand strong for it. Um, and uh, I've been incredibly moved, not by thousands, but by tens of thousands of messages that um, my family and I have received from all over the country, you know, emails and texts and phone calls and letters and everything. Valentine's Day was a beautiful day for us with all of the love that we felt from around the country. Um, but uh, there are a lot more patriots out there who are standing up for the Constitution and the country and the Union than there are traitors uh, who would go with um, all of these violent extremist groups that are trying to tear America down. And the rest of the world is watching. Um, every dictator and autocrat on earth, from Putin in Russia to El Sisi in Egypt to Orban in Hungary to Duterte in the Philippines, they're all rooting for Donald Trump. They all want to come back on his part. They, they would be laughing in America if that happened. And we have to stand strong for constitutional democracy. We've got to stand strong for all of the Republicans that are being targeted by their right-wing cancel culture that's trying to cancel out the Republican House members and senators who stood up for the rule of law. Um, so I just want to thank all of the patriots who are out there. And uh, I want to salute the people who are standing tall for the real America. All right. Congressman Jamie Raskin, Democrat from Maryland, we appreciate you joining us. Thanks for being here. And uh, thank you for uh, for sharing, again, part of your, your life story, as well as the, the case that you made uh, over the last couple of days. Thank you so much, sir. And thank you so much for having me. All right. And that does it for this edition of Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thank you to the entire team here, Adia Robinson, Trevor Hastings. For John Carl, I'm Rick Klein. Catch you next time.